Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Nefta. Nefta has created an advertising network that pays game publishers higher eCPMs on their iOS opt-out users and drives better results for advertisers. This works by delivering their campaigns to more receptive and relevant audiences using first-party data and behavioral analytics on an app-by-app basis. A simple two-step integration enables them to drive superior results for advertisers while increasing ARPDAO for publishers in a 100% privacy-compliant way. You can learn more about how Nefta can boost your results at nefta.io. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, of course, I have wonderful hosts and a face that's a bit of a fresh face that we've seen a couple times here, Taylor and Maria. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good. Yeah, I, I, w- I wish I was a fresh face. Moisturizing. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to grow a beard, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that might be difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A little harder. We don't have a uh, ton of news today, but we have still great topics. There's some, I, I think, some interesting news, if nothing else, like some things around Stumble Guys, which of course we've talked about in the past, which was uh, a bit of an interesting game in itself. Uh, Valve continuing to iterate on its store, thankfully, uh, unlike the other stores, which we'll talk about later on, not really iterating like they should be. And Activision Blizzard with some good news for once, and then Google with some. Bad news. A bit of a fine for them. So we'll get into the details of that. Why don't we just start with the, the Stumble Guys story here on Xbox? Yeah, so we've discussed Stumble Guys quite a lot in previous episodes. And so I won't go into the details of Stumble Guys, but they are stumbling into Xbox. And I thought that was really interesting because I feel it's, we already know that the mobile market is mature, but this for me is like the stamp of it is at this level of maturity because you have a game that started mobile first as a game that reached the platform, beating the competitor Fall Guys took over their time on mobile because Fall Guys didn't go to to that platform. And now with StumbleGuys success and the acquisition of Scopely, They've been doing an amazing job with the game. They put it into feature parity with Fall Guys because Fall Guys has like a creative mode where players can create their own levels and Stumble Guys has a workshop where you do exactly the same. And now they're going to move into Xbox. They also announced that they're moving into PlayStation, but that date isn't announced yet, at least for now. And so, yeah, like that's pretty amazing. This is a new threat for games that are on console. Some of you guys are already on PC through Steam, but this is like a new threat to console that be careful in protecting your market on mobile and capturing the attention and the loyalty of your players on that global platform because if you don't, well, here's the example of Stumble guys, they will come for your existing TAM. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's. I, I think it's interesting because obviously, some guys is a, or, or some guys is a, a copycat of of Fall Guys, and the initial big difference was they they were on different platforms, and it was there was a a gap within the the mobile space for this this type of experience, and some guys obviously pr- proved success there, and now but now they're going to be coming directly into the exact same market as the the copycat platform or the one that they copied off of. And I, I think another interesting aspect of this, obviously, is there's probably going to be a trend of more mobile games coming to console or, or PC. We just heard COD Mobile, which in itself was a old COD um, COD game, and it's now going to be coming to PC as well. It's an odd trend because obviously the, the the goal here for all publishers and developers is to continue to engage your user base with it through any medium that that they're available. And it's a we. I think we've already gone through this trend of of, of games basically being or needing to be cross platform, and I think we're going to continue to see this as everyone competes for for the the eyes and attention of, of of their user base. That they're going to continue to expand to other platforms, and yeah, it's it, it it it'll it'll be really interesting to watch this and see if if there actually is 
any user pool from from stumble guys to actually get their user base to come play these games on other platforms instead of playing the the original version of that game which was as, as fall guys and if they'll actually be able to to take any of that market share um and if people are going to be loyal to that brand or they're going to be loyal to the the best option on each of those platforms which i think is is going to be interesting to watch and i think we'll see a lot of mobile developers continue to to maybe push the, the limits a little bit of seeing if their game is accessible on other platforms because yeah, at the end of the day, it's we're all competing for the same same time for, for all these users, and I think this is one of the more this is one of the more easy or, or I guess obvious transitions. They've already there. There's already a successful one on on PC and console. Why not put your your version on there as well and see if you can compete with uh, with that larger player being I guess being Epic now. I completely agree. I definitely want to keep an eye on it and see what pans out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to learn. And I work in a mobile gaming studio and uh, yeah, I'm very curious to see if that is indeed possible and like what will happen because they even have like stumble guys, fall guys, if they're on a different platform, they could somewhat get away with it. But like what will happen now that they're on next to each other on Xbox and PlayStation? Yeah, we'll have to see what happens. It, 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 it'd be interesting to see if a company like Netflix would could maybe help with this transition. They obviously already have the the mobile application. They have they have their their OTT platform or, or their OTT application as well. And if they could, and, and obviously we all understand that like Netflix is leaning heavily into games, especially focused on mobile gaming. And if they could kind of create that 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 seamless experience of I I, I have Netflix on my phone, I have Netflix on my TV. Maybe we bring some some games to console in a sense, but it's obviously just you know, doing it through the OTT side of it. But there, I think there's some interesting opportunities for players outside of the, the game developer space. That'll be, that'll be interesting to watch as well. I'll be interested to see actually if, if with them moving over to Xbox, they start looking at opportunities with the Game Pass to be part of that as well, just to increase their user base even more because that might give them edge even more over Fall Guys by getting in there just because people are looking for the new games to try out. They, they rotate through them. Even if it, they may not be interested in it, they might play it, but it also could open up the opportunity. And this is something that like more broadly when you're talking about porting to, to Xbox for cloud, which then is technically all the platforms, right? You could play on a, on a variety of different platforms there, including PC without having to port it to PC. Now with the Xbox Live app, you still have to use... Uh, a gamepad on PC, unless you're doing it through like GeForce now, but you know, it's still like a way to bring that over to people that are on the PC side. I know America's a little bit more console centric though. So that's probably not as likely to happen here in the U S but it's interesting to see that, that this is like the the last move over there because while I don't have the metrics for like the, the Xbox side of things, steam and mobile are very different numbers of users when it comes to stumble guys and fall guys as well. Stumble guys does astronomically better on mobile than it does on Steam and, and has only been dwindling since 2022 in terms of player count, it, concurrent players. Uh, so it's, it's clearly not as like core of a game. Uh, it, it definitely leans towards mobile. And so I do wonder, is, is there a console audience? Is console itself something that you could kind of consider sort of between mobile and PC when it comes to that sort of mid-core to core audience that might still like casually play it? Which, like I said, in America, we tend to lean more towards consoles. So that might even give a little bit more penetration here. But some of that might, I think, depend on the social aspects as well, right? Because if you're talking about social, like a very social kind of game, potentially, you have to deal with Xbox gamer tags and, and the, that friend system and all that stuff too. So it'll be really interesting to see this this sort of cross-platform trend going both directions, going over to mobile, going, like, everyone's going every direction at once, especially when you're talking about having trouble acquiring more users. If you're tapped out on acquiring more users on the platform you're on, like then you just go to another platform. And now that like the engines are so portable to an extent like you don't have to hire these weird there used to be so many contract companies that would just do that sort of thing that would do the porting i'm sure they still i'm sure there's tons that still exist but like it's a little easier to handle when you can use the engine to, to do a lot of that lifting for you yeah and i think it'll be it'll be interesting to see over time maybe like over the over like a good like five-year period if 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 the trend ever shifts the opposite way of more console and pc games trying to move into mobile as well but obviously that i think is much harder to do than going from mobile to, to console and, and, and PC. But I mean, I, I think, think we're all aligned here. That's, this is all about acquiring more users and getting in front of more people. And I think we're getting to that point now where, where games, you, you, you are going to struggle to succeed on just one platform most of the time. 
And obviously at the end of the day, I think some of the guys kind of reach that maybe potentially in their eyes, reach that limit of this is, this is our mobile penetration. If we're going to get more users, it's, it's not coming through mobile. It's not coming through increased UA spend or any, uh, any other marketing opportunities. It's actually, we just need to get in front of people in different mediums. Yeah. And obviously there's the potential too, if people discover it on Xbox, they might go, Hey, Oh, I can also play this on mobile. Cool. When I'm not at home or whatever on the go. So you know, there's definitely opportunities to take advantage of like the different platforms for people at different times of days, different places they're at, things like that. I don't imagine that's like something that hits everyone, but it's, it's certainly nice to be able to go, Oh, hey, I could pull out my phone and, and play with my friends as long as the uh, cross plays there. Right. And that's, that's always a question. Will this have cross play, for example, with mobile and or steam? question but speaking of steam steam itself looking for some more discoverability options uh, around daily deals yeah so I, when i read about it i actually misunderstood what it was because that's how little i understand about how steam's marketing works and so i did a little bit of a deep dive to understand how there's a difference between the partnerships you can do with Valve to get promoted and then the what the algorithms do. And I want to credit the Game Discover Co. newsletter because they're the ones who deconstructed the feature. The FAQs are gated behind devlogins, so I appreciate you. So the feature is in beta and it's called Daily Deal Management. And Steam released a visibility video that explains how games are surfaced to players. Uh, I thought that was quite transparent of them. So they have algorithmic featuring, which is personalized to each player. And the algorithm is purely based on each player's preferences. And that includes the settings that they can configure. And then there's curated featuring, which is shown to all players. And so this includes the top takeover ba banner right at the top of the homepage of the store, but also special offers on that homepage, which includes the daily deals. And so when you're going to do curated featuring, it, it's driven by uh, Valve's confidence that it's a game that's going to appeal to a lot of players because it is going to be shown to every single player on the platform. So yeah, the daily deals is a curated feature. And yeah, they're earned, they say that they're earned with player interest. So it's not based purely on who you know at Valve. And I'm sure like as in any business, it helps if you know the right people and you have a good relationship with them. But that's Valve's culture. That's Steam's culture. It's how they aim to position themselves against, for example, the App Store or Google Play. It's about the player interest and the game's earning the curated featuring rather than being given. So the daily deal management feature is surfacing the existing daily deals curated featuring to all devs. It appears on the dashboard, which means what they're trying to resolve is information asymmetry. Because for you to get these curated featurings, you need to know that you can ask those questions, which questions you can ask, and who you can ask them to. And so it was somewhat based on that relationship and the knowledge and having that internal knowledge that this is an opportunity you can try to capture. But now, so they're just doing this for the daily deal. They're not doing it for the weekly deal and the monthly deal. I think they have other on the top banner. It's just a daily deal for now. And essentially what happens is that if you get chosen based on your game's performance, you receive an email saying that you're eligible for a daily deal. And then you go into your dashboard and the developer can set the promotion price. They can set when they want the promotion to be shown. It, it is shown for 24 hours within the time period of the promotion and is going to get surfaced. So the players, uh, the, the developers in control of that configuration. And so this just got me thinking that like, information asymmetry in the games industry is quite impactful. If we look at, for example, ad monetization, uh, performance marketing optimization, getting featured on these different platforms and the stores, it is a lot about who, what's your relationship and knowing the exact questions to, to ask. And props to Valve for beta testing this feature. Yeah, I was curious if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I think what's, I think what's interesting here is, I think most of us know that you know, Steam and Valve themselves are generally a black box. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, they've arguably the most valuable private games company out there for you know, pure gaming. You know, you can put your ByteDance in there and these other companies, but they're not just pure gaming businesses. And Steam has always been this interesting one of, there's, like, there, there's no real good alternative. People like Epic haven't been able to even like chip away into that, that market share. 
But what I think is super valuable about this transparency now is that developers can plan around it. This is if we know that the game's doing successful and then we're going to be able to get this like 30-day window to to do a daily deal, you can also, you know, correlate that with your your live ops schedule as well or your live service schedule and being able to actually say, "Hey, let's plan a daily deal around this limited time mode or this this new update that we're about to push for the game and see if we can double team this this user acquisition channel through the cheaper game and more content itself." And I think in any games platform or or games company transparency is always going to be better for the developers on the platform it's it makes it a little bit easier to plan going forward and i think this this will be extremely helpful i think the one thing i'm i'm still a little concerned about on the black box side is you know, what is a successful game how what do i need to target to make sure i'm going to get this daily deal opportunity and it still seems like today it's a a toss up of like okay i'm just going to i'm just going to continue to to market my game i'm going to continue to try to acquire users and and, and attempt to get these invisible metrics that hopefully make Valve notice us and give us this opportunity. But I think there's strategy around that. You don't want people trying to game the system. You want people to actually just try to build yeah, a successful game exactly. and then we'll and then we'll benefit it. But I, I I I do imagine there will be some companies that pop up that that are trying to help out developers in this space and they they may understand Steam's internal algorithms that that they're using to choose which games they want to offer these daily deals to. But I, I think there's just going to be a lot of value in, in the dev cycle and being able to time this with, when am I going to be able to get a daily deal opportunity? Because as soon as I get that invite from from Valve, we're going to start playing around it. And I think that's going to be beneficial to both developers and Valve itself. Definitely. And uh, it's what you're saying. I somewhat understand the black box because as soon as you exactly detail the metrics, then you know, then you have the rules of what metrics you have to to game to get noticed. And something I found quite interesting is that in that video of the visibility, they didn't say what counts, but they did say what actually does not count. And there's this these rumors that the amount of wish lists you have and the store page visits matter. And so they clarified that those elements don't play a role. And so, yeah, at least they say what doesn't matter and trying to squash some rumors of how, you know, some games might be trying to game the, the algorithms. That's interesting because the I, I feel like when when I whenever I talk to game developers, it's there's so much value in that early community that you create. And that's where everyone goes for it. So we we want to get as many wish lists as possible. We want people to be on our store looking at updates, waiting for this game to come out. And when you're in the early stages of building a game, that's the only metric you have. And so I am. I would say I'm a little surprised. I think I saw Devin make a face as well of this. Like I'm surprised that doesn't matter because it should be valuable to Valve if, if if there are extremely successful early access games. But I, I guess the way they would look at this is you don't need the daily deal. You're going to be successful based off of the wish lists I'm seeing and the store traction we're seeing. That we actually, as a company that takes 30% of your revenue, we don't want you to do a daily deal. We want you to launch this full price because we're seeing that success there, and then we'll allow you to potentially be able to revamp that that user acquisition channel. If, if it seems that maybe if you're starting to pull back on sales and the game's still, game's still doing well, we'll try to help you bump that number back up and see if we can get some more traction there and maybe get these long tails of users. Yeah, if those two metrics don't matter, what does that even leave outside of reviews and maybe discussion activity? There's not a ton of activities around a game because it's a store at the end of the day. So like that's maybe as you're pointing out, Taylor, it, it has to do with games that are say highly well rated, but not getting the traction they should, for example, or, or games that could be well rated, but don't even have enough ratings yet and maybe need a little bit of extra boost. So it might be an opportunity like that, but I didn't notice one thing about the, the at least that was mentioned in the, the article that was uh, odd was that they're asking the, the, the people that they're inviting to provide their best price they've ever offered or better. So they're not letting you do like less than you can't do. Like, if you had some crazy sale, you either got to do that or better. And you can't go backwards at all. In this invitation. Now they may adjust that. This is kind of the invite only phase. They may change that over time. But I thought that was interesting that they're, they are looking for deeper discounts in a way. So it's definitely not mm. necessarily that they're like looking to try and juice up the ones that are the higher purchase price, unless you're just offering a bigger discount on something that's a big purchase price. But for, I mean, for all we know, it could be games that have tons of DLC where they know there's like tons of upsell potential down the road, stuff like that. There's a lot of possibilities, as you said, like a black box, but though it was interesting that they're asking for that deep of cuts. It feels like a Walmart kind of move. So it surprises me in a, in a system where like the price cuts, while they do drive a lot of interest, already undermine a little bit of some of the way things work on Steam when it comes to the way people wait for things. Mm. And then the 
the, the other problem I see with this is if you're talking about daily deals right now, the daily deals are very poorly surfaced. They're like stuck in the middle of midweek deals. There's like, when I went and checked earlier, there was like one on the front thing. And I had to scroll a couple of times in the, in the midst of the midweek deals to see the second one in there. And they just, and if you go to like, see all, you can't tell when they're in there. So it seemed like they're very, very poorly surfaced at the moment. And so there's no habit forming at the moment for going and checking for daily deals, right? Like there's a weekly habit to, to the most, like at the most, uh, when you're going in, like you're other than being notified by email, for example, when things go on sale that you've wishlisted, which if you're anything like me and have so many things wishlisted, you just get like an email that says like this and 14 other games are on sale. I was like, well, that's, that does, I'm not going to open that email. Like I get it stuff that I, I wishlisted is on sale. I'll manually check it when there's a steam sale at that point. And I am sure there's a lot of people out there like that. So that even doesn't necessarily drive a lot of activity to it. Now there might be people who just religiously refresh steam every day, but I can't imagine that's the norm because it's not like a daily refresh kind of store, at least from my perception of it. I could be totally off base on that, but I, I haven't seen anything on there that generally outside of like the sales themselves, where they're doing like event based stuff and driving daily activity, like come in and get your trading card things every day, that sort of thing. So maybe this is part of that as well. Maybe they are looking to move towards driving more daily interest refreshes, people like itching for something to buy on a daily basis, looking for good deals, trying to snipe stuff like the way that Amazon does their like lightning deals kind of things to mm-hmm. get people to, to have a little bit of FOMO. So it, it might just be part of that. But I, I do got to say like, well, Valve's a bit more of a black box. They also seem to care a lot more about discoverability and promoting developers and games far, far more than many of the other platforms. Now, I, I can't speak for Microsoft. They can be pretty pro developers. So I'm talking a bit more like mobile, definitely. Seem, seems to be pretty anti-developer at times. And so it's a little, uh, or, or I guess, refreshing at this point to continue to see Valve try and push things that help discovery, even if it's you know kind of a weird invite-only thing. Like the, They have shown transparency occasionally around the labs, for example, like the, the lab experiments that they do. Occasionally show the results of that, talk a bit about that kind of stuff in interviews. So they're not like transparent because they're not a public company, but they will definitely occasionally go back and like do a little bit of retrospective behind the scenes kind of stuff. Like I was even looking something up earlier around the the whole thing that happened with uh, Skyrim mods and they're being pulled off because they're actually sort of being put back for sale through some other loophole I won't get into. And I was just looking at when that happened and like they were, Valve was pretty transparent about why they took them off, why they were trying to do that experiment, why maybe it didn't work, why it was a mismatch. So I thought that kind of transparency maybe after the fact may not be always common, but they are at least forthcoming when they feel like it's uh, in the best interest of people to know without feeling like they're a manipulative company. They still feel closer to benevolent, which is funny to see like Tim Sweeney trying to play that same angle uh, when it's like, you guys are competitors, but you're both like better about supporting developers than a lot of the others. So For the price cut, I believe that's already how daily deals are. It's not something new, so it's carried over from that. And I understand from the perspective, if we go to the justification of the curated featuring, it's something you're going to show to all players. You want to be sure that it is a deal. And so I understand it from, from that point. And in the visibility um, video, they also said that ratings don't matter. It matters if you're like 40% or lower, but anything higher than that, it's, it doesn't count in the, in the interest. There's no metrics left at this point. <laughs> well, you have revenue, you have concurrent players and total player count. And then they also mentioned, now I forgot, I forgot what, what it was. We were discussing it. Oh, the wish listing, like the Game Discoverer newsletters is really good. They actually did a breakdown and you can somewhat predict the success of when your game goes for sale based on the wish listing and the conversions. And then you can analyze benchmark games to understand and benchmark the conversions closer to you. And so I was very interesting deep diving into Steam. Like kudos to anyone who's a specialist on that platform because it seems to have its own magic. Cause I'm just used to like mobile platform magic. And it's interesting to see Steam has its own magic dust as well. I wanted to talk of just touch on AI. I don't can I, Devin? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it's still on the same topic of uh, Steam here. So yeah, I, I didn't really see this news circulating, but Steam and Valve allow AI again. So they were pretty open. They said they needed a little bit of time to understand the, the legalities. And now they've updated their develop, developer terms and conditions. And in the content survey, you have to fill out when you're submitting to Steam. You have to disclaim how AI was used to generate content, including code, when you are developing the game. And then if it 
also utilizes AI when it's running, you have to describe like what guardrails you have to ensure it's not creating illegal or infringement content. And then as part of those disclosures, when they're analyzing the submission, they're going to check, I suppose, like as as much as they can, the veracity of, of those disclaimers. Yeah, like that's really good news, I find. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Steam. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting because there's there was two like main comments I think that Valve came out with on that. One was obviously as a global platform, we need to make sure the legality of what you're doing is is in line with you know the regulatory bodies and what what they're ex- expecting. And I think we've talked about this on a previous episode as well. Of you know, the biggest concern with AI is is usually copyright infringement. It's you know, are, and, and then obviously when you get into certain markets, there's there's issues around you know how those those governments expect games to provide content and what that content is but seems also made a comment of we want to be the platform with the most games possible and i think that is you want to talk about a value of ai i mean it's probably just yeah it's quicker quicker to market we can build things faster we can get things more things to market and specifically around games but but the issue that you run into there is this this quality compression uh yes we can is is the is the the hope here that we're going to have more games or that we're going to have more good games. And I think that's, that that's one of the concerns that the, the, these stores will get flooded with content. If, if AI tools ever get to that level. And obviously then that, that requires a longer verification process and steam obviously having to essentially manually go through every one of these games to make sure that the one that they're not just ripoffs of other games or that there's not IP concerns or that there's, we're not going to have regulatory concerns in other, other jurisdictions. But I think it is it, it is interesting that they, they did reopen this up because I think there's been a lack of clarity around like how much AI am I allowed to use where this doesn't actually even matter. And, you know, I think at first, you know, it seems obviously had their concerns with blockchain games before. I think AI is obviously that next that next cycle. And with every new technology, there's there's new concerns that come up. And I don't think a lot of these these platforms want to be the promoter of these of the problems within these spaces. And I think at a, at a certain point, you get to the, the side of, I'd rather just not have anything with AI or not have anything with blockchain just because I don't want to have to even take that risk. Uh, but but no, I think this is good because I think it's it, it does lean into their their mentality of we, we want to have, we want to be the place where you can play every game. You can access every single game and we want to have as much content as possible. And so AI is a beneficiary of that or, or, or benefit to that that plan, but we'll, we'll see how long this lasts because all it's going to take is one true DMCA takedown that is is not just a small player, but maybe something like Disney that is concerned that yeah they have their characters being being used in these games without without their. Um, it's Steamboat Willie. It's fine, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's so that I I think it is good. I think it, it's good to at least try these things. Just like I, I I do think Steam should allow for blockchain games, and I think the the benefit to consumers Thank is you. having a platform that you can trust, and. That's like that's that's what's important to me. But I think a lot of these platforms don't want to be the one who trust or liability falls onto in the long run. And AI is that new, I think, scary term that platforms are like. I'd I'd rather I'd rather not be the the promoter of this. I'll I'll, I'll wait a little bit longer. And so we'll 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 see where that goes and we'll see what concerns come up. But it is it is interesting the the, the very quick turnaround from Steam on this. Yeah, where where's blockchain games, Valve? Come, come yeah, and let us on. <laughs> just take the epic approach, throw the disclaimer on there and call it a day, right? Like that seemed to be the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I take it does that. Seem it's a, about protecting legal liability, which, yeah. I mean, th- that's like the same approach that Google basically took with with allowing NFTs on the games, which was like, hey, it, this if you do it this way, it's basically gambling. So you need to be gambling registered, licensed and all that. If you do that, you're cool. If If not, just don't do that and you're fine. And that was basically, I mean, they're still like, don't touch cryptocurrency, but. As long as it's just NFT kind of stuff, they're still fine with it. So I think this was a case too where like Valve was just hitting the brakes rather than saying no forever. And like even even to be fair on the Web3 stuff, they did try and do cryptocurrency stuff for a while. And they said, hey, this is this is not working at all for us right now. This stuff's too unstable. It's too new. We love pioneering new stuff. They helped pioneer some of the big VR stuff and everything else and Steam Deck as it is. But they, they had to be like, this is not ready for us right now. Like we could come back to this later, but we don't see in the foreseeable future where this is going to work. So we're just going to turn it off and not allow it. But blocking AI seems a lot more problematic than blocking NFT and cryptocurrency because it's a lot less obvious, right? So there's two places you could be talking about it. You could be talking about it in the live game 
in which case like things are being produced by players essentially through AI systems or in the development pipeline. If you're talking about the development pipeline, there's already been games in the like, the finals admitted they were using AI some of the stuff, and you know they're one of the, they're one of the bigger ones admitting it. But I'm sure there was tons. And that's the thing is it's very difficult to police this. If you're talking about it, either in the pipeline or in the game, it's not that hard to disguise it in certain ways. And the thing is, you could say it's procedural. You could be like, oh, it's not AI. This is procedurally generated. But, you know what I mean? Like it's it's there's definitely ways you could get around it. And so I don't think Valve wants to spend a whole bunch of resources chasing that. And so it's more like they just set up the legal protection now and say, hey, like you agree to this. You say you're playing by the rules. And if not, like we could just probably kick you off. Like we're not going to deal with the legal hassle of this. So you better dot your I's across your T's like before you do this. So you don't get in trouble too, but we're making sure we're protected. And I think that's the fair stance, uh, but that could obviously go too far. Like where, where you just don't allow things or you start to get a little too crazy, but I would like to see them lean towards what Google's doing with NFTs, for example, as a way to get towards it. And there are a number now of, of Web3 games that have put non-Web3 versions on Steam. Like I was just looking at Phantom Galaxies earlier. Like it's always fun to read the reviews of these NFT games are always super positive from Steam users. So I'm I'm honestly not sure even why. Like if I was a Web3 developer right now, I, I wouldn't want to put my game on Steam just because it's a huge amount of negative PR from the reviews alone. It doesn't really help you, I think, but. It's still something I think we'd all like to have. And in the meantime, I don't usually see a lot of reviews, period, on Epic. So I think it's probably safer there. It's like how if you put your game out in early access, there's no reviews. And so that kind of helps. Like in insert platforms on Google Play, for example. So there are certain ways you can take advantage of that. But I do I do applaud Valve for turning this around. Just like when Epic turned around that whole adults-only thing in like a week or two. It's good that the, both these platforms are like being logical and reasonable. Because game developers are already having hard enough time as it is right now. And, uh, and while not everyone's a big fan of AI, like people like the finals were showing like, hey, this is a tool to leverage that can help us multiply our, our efforts because games are really expensive to develop right now. We can't afford a huge team to devo- do all this and people are enjoying the result. No one's like mad. And there was just a recent agreement on like, I don't think we ever mentioned it on here within the last week or two around voice actors and AI to find like a good compromise where they could be like, yeah, you could use AI voice stuff, but it has to like follow these rules and payment terms and stuff like that. So like, I think we're making progress to the point where this might not even be rejected as hard as Web3 stuff was. It, it might just find a good sort of middle ground. Assuming the tools can even keep up and not end up just mediocre and ditched anyways. But I think stuff like the finals was good proof of that. So this is, this yeah, is good, I, I think, overall. I also think decades of fantasy and like sci-fi and AI has helped build a culture of acceptance of AI. Because if we compare the... Anyway, I'm, I won't go into it. I won't go into it. Yeah, I'll stop here. Well, sp- speaking of these other developers, and uh, I mean, I guess good news here from, from developers that normally we, we, I think, tend to bash a little bit. Activision Blizzard with, with a little bit of a makeup here. Oh, yeah. I wanted to bring this up because when we discussed when we discussed the breakup on this podcast, we reached the conclusion that once the acquisition from Microsoft was finalized, they would make up again with NetEase because Microsoft has a relationship with NetEase. It's the publisher of the China edition of Minecraft. And as much as the, the financial statements mentioned that it was fine. It didn't make really any difference. Uh, It did make a difference. Mainland China is a massive market. And so from, I think they said it's going to take around six months because they have to build up the domestic teams and then test the servers and do all the processes. So maybe in six months time, the portfolio, because Diablo Immortal always stay alive, but the portfolio of World of Warcraft, Overwatch, uh, the StarCraft series, and so on will will go back to, to being playable. And so this is a positive turn for both companies, but also for the players, because they've invested so much time and money playing these franchises that they love, and then completely out of their control because the two companies didn't reach an agreement. And Bobby Kotick is no longer the CEO of Activision Blizzard, who was rumored to be a key player in this lack of agreement. So yeah, it's really, really good that the players now can enjoy their games again. So a good outcome. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it it it's obviously one of those things you always have to pay attention to because these are these are massive, massive games companies that are being you know secluded from the largest gaming market if if they don't have these specific partners. Activision has also partnered with Tencent for Call of Duty Mobile as like their local publisher for for mainland China and. Yeah, I, I think you all are right on this. Uh, even with hindsight, of like, there there was no way this 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 deal was going to 
stay in, in, in that position of negotiations and not being able to find an agreement. This is beneficial to both groups. I think Microsoft throughout this, or even Activision throughout this acquisition process, has been very clear that the, the goal is to get these games in front of the most people possible. And it's they they actually seem to be taking a less like a less of a control from the from that perspective of no, we'll we'll partner with anybody. We want this on every platform out there. We want this accessible to every sort of end user that that wants to play this game. And so I think it and it is good. It's because it, I think you're so right about this that there's there's always this concern as a gamer that at any time, not the fact that we've gone fully digital is that these games can be shut down and I lose everything I've ever worked for. I, there's no, I don't have that physical copy anymore that I can, I can hop back into my game if the, if the publisher chooses not to. And I think we're even seeing this with, I think it was, oh shoot, I'm forgetting. Ubisoft. They, there, yeah. there was another game that just, they just released their, the second version. They're like, no skins are going to transfer over from us, uh, uh, Smite. I think it was Smite. Oh yeah, yeah, and they're, yeah. And they're like, yeah, not, nothing from Smite 1 is going to be transferable over to Smite 2. And it's it, it's tough it, it, as a gamer. Like I, I put so many hours into this, and now I got to start from scratch. You know, all that money I spent is 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 for nothing now. I, I mean, I can still play the game, but obviously, I'm going to move to the next one. And yeah, and this just falls into this the same category that you know when you see NetEase and, and Activision not working together anymore. The first thing you think about is, man, how many gamers spent money on this that are just going to just lose access because these two large groups can't come to an agreement. And now I'm not going to be able to play this game or use any of the things that I've, I've purchased. So I think it's good for everybody. It's obviously really good for Microsoft, really good for Activision. This is access to the, 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 the largest market that, that you're going to find in the world. And so, I mean, well, I don't think there's ever going to be really a time where there's no agreement. It'll be when it comes to mainland China, if there's not an agreement, it's probably more so that they don't want that game played in their, you know, in their country at all. It's not really these groups. It's beneficial to NetEase and Microsoft and Activision. This had to happen, and I do know I do know they were discussing these agreements with other groups as well. They they were always yeah. going to find somebody, whether or not it was going to be NetEase again or not. And this reminded me was a there's a spicy take from the Ubi, a Ubisoft exec because they announced the Ubisoft Plus Premium subscription service or something like that. And the exec said players have to get comfortable not owning their games. Yeah, that's, that feels it, like a very tough. controversial statement. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 one of those things that I think is going to be really it, it, forever. It's going to be something that we all we all think about. I mean, not only are we in the games industry, but we are also all gamers ourselves, and we all probably spend money on games. That it, it, it's tough to hear somebody say, "Hey, you don't actually own this. You're renting it. This is you're, from everything from the game itself to the skins you're purchasing. You don't own anything, and you have to be comfortable with that. And that's that's just not how I think a lot of us grew up playing. We, you owned it. It was yours. You, when you purchased it, it was it was your game, and everything you have cannot be taken away from from that developer. And now we're in this we're we're in this like, weird cycle of like hoping games work out. Like everyone everyone's playing them in the earliest stages, and then out of nowhere, the developer shuts the game down, and you're like, oh wow, I I, I bought this game and I, I spent all this money, and you just took it from me. And so yeah, it's. I don't know if that was the uh, the best thing for anybody at Ubisoft to be saying. Maybe you keep that behind closed doors. Uh, but uh, I don't know how. I don't know what kind of reaction they were expecting to get from that. The good news is they're they're not that not everyone is taking that mentality. Just as an aside, like and CSoft just allowed City of Heroes to to like exist as a as like the the sort of port people did, where they like forked off the leaked source code as City of mm-hmm. Heroes Home, Homecoming, so you can now play this old MMO completely free like the whole game servers are f- like free everything's free even like the the stuff that was normally paid in like is playable in there and so like that's an example of them just being like hey like it's more valuable the goodwill i mean who knows maybe they're trying to plan a sequel and keep people interested yeah, they might have an alternative motive but it's still there is ways to do it to say like hey if you guys are going to put in all the effort cool go for it then like still ma- maintains good goodwill we don't have to do anything and it might just be like a license agreement where it's like we can yoink this at any time or we can like we control this IP still. So don't mess around with it. But there is ways to still like because I've noticed pretty much every game still like that that doesn't get huge takedowns still tries to maintain like you could still play plenty of Ultima Online servers. Uh, I'm sure if, if Blizzard wasn't uh, so you know, smack of the hammer down, there'd be a lot more. There used to be all the vanilla servers and stuff before they brought back classic and things like that. So there is opportunity to allow the community to take it. But then Ubisoft's probably just like, well, we're not really that kind of company. We don't really make those kind of games. Like we're a content turning out company and that wouldn't Mm -hmm. be good for us. And we're trying to like monetize our back catalog. So it's better if we say you don't own it. So it does make sense coming from them with like their position right now, but it just is a foot and mouth sort of thing to put out there. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that you think 
or you discuss internally, but you don't say with such clear wording externally. But I, I do see where Ubisoft is coming from. Sometimes I wonder if we have these feelings because that's how we grew up and our consumer profile is different from the consumer profile of these newer generations where you do like rent stuff. You don't like you rent furniture, you rent your clothes. It's also, you have all these subscriptions. And so I do believe that there is a shift of what ownership truly means and consumerism. And so maybe we care, but maybe the next generation of consumers will be more happy having a subscription and playing all these games. And like for them, it doesn't really matter the ownership. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's always a trade off, and I, and I think the trade off that I think we we are we're all seeing as we grow up is is accessibility to more content. I mean, I used to have to go to GameStop to get a new game. There was no, I wasn't just able to scroll through libraries and pick and choose the games I wanted to play. So I definitely have the benefit now of going digital as being a accessibility benefit. But now there's always a concern of, oh well, now I don't actually own this. I'm not. I I don't have the ability to play this forever indefinitely. There's, I hope I can. But but I do think yeah company I, th- I think you, you said NCSoft Devin yeah NCSoft did this uh, yeah that's how you build brand loyalty though like, so that it'll be interesting to watch both sides of it of does does this work out long term for NCSoft because people are like oh I'm willing to trust them they're gonna keep my game alive but on the flip side of it yeah I, I do want tons of content I can I can be able to play and we'll we'll, we'll see if we just get to this mentality of it's more of a consumption based mentality instead of an ownership based mentality and just I'm just gonna play it until I can't anymore and move on to the the next one of 20,000 games that I that I have access to today. Yeah. Surprisingly, it's probably not sanctioned, but like Star Wars Galaxies, for example, still playable as well. There's people running homebrew servers for mm. it and stuff. Pretty well known. And I'm like, I'm surprised knowing Disney the way they like to shut stuff out. Or even like before Disney owned it, Star Wars generally was not something you messed with if you were modding or trying to do stuff unofficially. So I'm not sure like how they're getting away with it right now. It, it might be like, ah, that's fine. Mm. We'll leave it alone. Or whoever owned like Star Wars Galaxies specifically, I might have left it alone. This is nice to see that there are people like willing to preserve it, even when Ubisoft doesn't think you own it. But I, I don't know. There's, there is a complicated subject, right? Like, and it's definitely something that like, especially right now we're surrounded by retro game stuff everywhere. And it's like, does that just not exist in the future? Like it's, it's a big question, but like there was one last thing I wanted to touch on the blizzard thing just briefly before we move on to the next thing, which is around Diablo four, for example, was not published in China. Am I understanding at all? Because this this rift had happened before they had anyone new. So this now opens up the opportunity for Diablo 4 to finally launch in China. But in light of those new proposed restrictions around gaming, this is where it starts to get a little dicey, right? Because those start to dip more into the types of monetization and things that, especially Diablo Immortal was, was tapping into, but also Diablo 4. And so it's like, yeah, all these older games that were just premium off-the-shelf games, like that, they didn't violate any of this proposed stuff around like daily login rewards and things like that but the newer games start to dip into that and it's like okay well this starts to be something where it's like maybe NetEase is going to help them navigate that but also i feel like the NetEase has seen the writing we've talked about this and I, and I think a previous episode where NetEase is kind of looking at like maybe we should start publishing a little bit more outside china because we're hugely dependent on the, the mainland audience and that might not be as lucrative as it used to be if this stuff starts coming down on like our business models and so they're now going to have hopefully a better relationship now with a Western publisher that can then help because now that Western publisher is under Microsoft. It's an even bigger force to be able to help them publish outside of China. So like, it seems like a beneficial relationship for both of them now to consider that, but it actually might benefit China the least depending on if they drop the hammer down pretty hard. So really interested to see where this goes over the next couple of months. Cause those were mm-hmm. proposed regulations. They haven't been enforced, but likely some of that probably will. So we'll see. But speaking of forcing from the government, in this case, Google getting slapped in the wallet, this time not necessarily from Epic, but still pretty hard. Yeah, this is obviously we've all known about this ongoing you know, case between Epic and Google and Epic and, and Apple. And it, it seems like it's somewhat come to a, at least a temporary end. I think we were all expecting a little bit more clarity or some more extreme changes. But yes, Google, is, Google was charged uh, or, or fined $700 million. They obviously have admitted no wrongdoing, but that is generally due to their practices within their store and overcharging either developers or consumers. And and at, at the core of this, I mean, this the the, the other the, the flip side of this was Apple and, and Epic did somewhat have a an agreement. I don't think we was anywhere near the level what we were expecting, but 
Apple's now going to start allowing for more clarity around like sideloading games and being able to direct players to different different payment ecosystems, specifically on the web. Now, the issue of this is nothing really changed. They're they're still charging twenty seven percent on any of these fees. They are going to continue to give users all the warnings in the world to keep them within their own ecosystem. But, and so, and so it, it, obviously I think Apple and Epic both appealed to the Supreme court on this. They were both denied. And I know Epic is now going to reappeal at the district court level as well and continue this process, which I love Epic and Tim Sweeney are fighting for us, but man, this is, I, I do not think this is going the the way they were hoping for. Apple does have some interesting interesting arguments for them not being a monopoly, which, which, which is funny that Google is on the flip side of this, of like, they are a monopoly due to the fact that they're only providing the software and obviously paying a lot of these OEMs to not only leverage Android, but also promote the Google play store. And we'll pay you as an OEM a fee. If you, if you promote us and you make us your exclusive partner, but then Apple has for some reason been protected from this because they provide the hardware and software. So there's, there's, some reason that's not seen as much of a monopoly. But what I think here is, this is something that we've been discussing a lot internally here at Convoy, and I think even a little externally as well, which is, is this the beginning of the the web renaissance for for mobile? And the, the issue here is, is that consumers do trust Apple. That is, and Apple knows this. You you don't question Apple Pay. When you pay for something that you're, the security has been, you're not concerned about who you're interacting with. And when you start allowing for sideloading or progressive web apps and allowing payments outside of it, consumers not only going to have trust issues, but they have a user, uh, a UI UX issue as well of just like, hey, I, I don't want to have to go to another web page, log into that account, go find the assets that I was looking to buy, make sure it's connected to my my mobile application. People just want to pay for things, and consumers don't think about it. And the and the big issue here is is that with Apple not really changing fees as much as people were expecting developers don't have the ability to actually incentivize any of their users to actually move to the web the the the, the thought here was if, if we got to a point where apple was like okay we're only going to take 10 percent if you go to the web well then developers can offer a 50 percent decrease in cost and still make a a five percent margin on going to the web users have a benefit developers have a benefit apple still gets up their cut as well but with it being very similar to the old fees, there's no incentive to a developer to actually push you to the web. With 27% plus your transaction fees or your you know, your credit card fees and your processing fees, you're at the same number. And what I what, what developers care about at the end of the day is user experience. We we want users to purchase as quick as possible. You, you don't actually want people to think it through or say, ah, this is too much for me to to go through to, to spend this money. But the the good news that I think came out of this all was there are problems. There, there, there are concerns from the regulatory perspective that Google and Apple do have, are either practicing in unethical behaviors or are a monopoly. And we're slowly moving forward. It's, it's, it's not over, but yes, Google has finally got their first, you know, or, or got one of their ma- a major fine to actually, I would say, set in stone they were doing stuff wrong. And Apple is officially making some moves now to try to be more developer and user friendly. I just, I just think it's all a facade, to be honest. It just, oh yeah, we we're, we're giving up something here, but at the end of the day, you're not really giving up anything. Nothing's going to change. You're going to people. I, I think I think I actually even saw some stats on this of when Google released or updated their their terms to allow for third party web stores. It was something like five percent of of users in dollars ended up going to those web stores, which, which is still five percent. But Google was also still taking a fee on on those transactions, but. There's so much value in trusting these platforms, and no one wants to have an account in every for every single publisher and developer they they interact with. So, it's 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 interesting to see where we after all after what two plus years now this is this is where we're at. It'll definitely continue, but I don't, I don't think we're I don't think anybody's really happy with where we are. It seems like a, almost a waste of time, but hopefully yeah. it does push regulators to continue to look into this. Yeah, I I appreciate Epic taking on this battle. My understanding of why Google did get the fine and now has like a five-year timeline where they have to implement some changes like the experience for sideloading was because they there was proof that they had paid these big publishers to not have their own store. And so that was an anti-competitive move. Whilst with Apple, that, that wasn't the case. And 
I was actually the product manager leading a mobile game to have a web shop. And before I did that legwork, I heard, oh, you have a web shop and you'll get players there and then you'll have uh, better savings on the cut. But actually, <laughs> when you put things together about you won't, you'll probably have to integrate with a processing payment system and you want them to be merchant of record unless you're a bigger company. And so they're going to be taking a fee. And then you have the, the fee of the credit cards. And then depending on where the transaction happens, the country, the type of payment, that the payment provider that they're using, you could easily get like an 8% fee on top of the fee you're paying this, this payment partner. And then you have to have your web shop and have a team to improve the UX and the UI and the integration and maintenance and have the live ops tools that you need to do the promotions there and Unless you're a bigger company, if we're talking about like you're optimizing your revenue at that point, when we're talking about going to different platforms and you're trying to acquire users and you're trying to increase the average revenue that you get for your existing paying users, that all makes sense. But if we're talking about this is going to completely change how studios are going to monetize their users. Yeah, I, I disagree. Like, yeah, it's great to have a new way to optimize a game. But it's not revolutionary when you put all the costs together. And then you also have like the user experience of scams. You know, people are going to send you links that are not true. Like it's not the actual web shop of the game. And then you have the customer support costs. Like all of these costs are adding up. And so it's not an obvious decision, in my opinion, for a, a title to decide to have a web shop. It is a decision that has to be carefully weighed with the pros and cons. I think it's pretty obvious, though, if they're going to ask for 27%, for example, they could do things to facilitate that safety when going out. Like there's outside of putting a scare screen, they could definitely do something about that. We have things like HTTPS, domain certificates. We have ways of like trying to validate that stuff. If that's hard coded into the app, for example, like you're not going to end up somewhere else. They control the only browser you're allowed to even use. And you have to go through that. And they actually purposely made it so that it's a terrible experience. You get basically kicked out of your your session. You have to go find whatever you were going to buy again. They basically made it near impossible to use. And so it's like, it's obvious, like they could earn that 27% pretty easily. So it's pretty clear that they're not interested in earning their cut. And that's that's the bad faith part that I, I, I'm not sure about Google, but on the Apple side, Epic's definitely going back to the court and being like, this is, come on, like this is not a, a remedy. Like they're clearly just laughing at us at this point. And like, and the question is whether the court's gonna, I, I don't think a, a court's not gonna see, unless they just land in the wrong court where the judge is just like closing his eyes or looking the other way kind of thing. I, I can't imagine you wouldn't see that and be like, well, yeah, that's clearly a bad, bad faith argument because it's not that, oh, Apple's providing all these services and stuff at 30%. It's like, well, that's why you pay the fee to be, a developer like you're already giving them money for that like and google gets charging far less for that even and still manages to somehow make it work and they're having to pay people to install their os as opposed to apple where they're making the money off the hardware the os the everything on it like their own apps it, it just the argument i think is just clearly invalid blatantly but it's a situation where apple's also going to have to deal with this eu their the digital markets act that's they're going to have to start to do something about that soon and i have a feeling they're going to do the same thing right they're just going to do this sort of fake solution and it's up to the regulators to actually call them out on that. And if they don't, then it's like, then we can't really win at that point. And it just becomes like, well, then we're going to have to end around. We're going to have to push people to the web more natively and not even just through the stores because clearly they're not going to play ball until they absolutely positively have to. And it's, I mean, from a business perspective, sure. But at this point, I feel like Apple's doing a really good job of making the case for why people should start considering not releasing on iOS at some point as a game developer. Yeah. Like, Maybe for other apps, it might be okay, but like considering they're getting to the point where they're pushing to charge you to advertise your own thing on top of the other UA you're doing, on top of the 30%, on top of the development costs, it gets to the point where it's it's untenable as a business, I think, to run on iOS unless you're getting a lot. Now, obviously, you get more paying users sometimes or like a, a higher spend sometimes. And yeah, that's the only thing that generally. really I think, makes it a hard sell. Now, other countries, though, certain countries like definitely are going to do better on Google Play. So this, this could shift over time, right? Like it's just an economics problem right now that continues to cement the monopoly more than it is necessarily just a technological one. Yeah. And I, th I think one of the issues that, that, that I, that I noticed here was like the regulatory and like government bodies, they, they were never prescriptive. It was never, you need to do this. It was always, I, we just need you to change. And so Apple's like, all right, we'll change. We, we changed 
yeah, our fees 3% lower now. You can go to the web if you want to do that. And like, I think you're so right about this. Apple's just laughing. They're like, this is so easy to, this is so easy to get around. Like they're, you're, you're not going to take away market share from us. Like, we'll we'll change. But if you're not going to tell us exactly what to do, we're going to do the bare minimum. And at the end of the day, all you said was we have to do something. And we did something. And we're smart enough to know this is not going to impact our bottom line in, in any way. But this is why I really do think there's a massive opportunity here. Maria, you talking about building a web shop. Somebody's going to potentially have the opportunity here to build that trust in a, in a web shop and be the aggregator and curator of, of content where everyone's comfortable with. There's a, it's pay through company X and everyone trusts it. It's not pay through this developer's portal every single time. It's, hey, no, you use our platform. We have a sideloaded application that has access to all this. We've made it super easy for you to use. We're going to be the merchant of record. We're going to be that trust layer for all your users. We're going to take on that liability. And I think there is a, a serious opportunity there if, if somebody can can really, really fix the problems that developers are going to run into with trying to get t- trying to monetize their users. And so still super excited about the web. I think people are going to continue to build for it. And the thing is, I only think the the benefits are going to, to continue to shift towards developers and consumers. Apple can't go backwards now. You can't now re-increase fees or take away sideloading. Like that's that to me is going to obviously raise some eyebrows and it's, it's a good start. I'll, I'll be interested to see where, where it goes and see how much developer and user pool can, can continue to push Apple as well to maybe even support this a little bit more. But yeah, it's, it is, it is kind of funny. They, they just, they were like, yeah, here's, all right, we, we did something and people were, and regulators were like, all right, well, I guess that's all we asked you to do was something. So I don't really know what, like, you know, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where somebody says you have to charge this or you can only charge this, but well, we'll I, I think it'll have to start becoming prescriptive if we ever want a real solution here. Yeah, but at the moment that governments start making these types of prescriptions, that that opens a new uh-huh. era of how, yeah, I'm going around and sort of like how prescriptive they can define these solutions and limit the product development and yeah, restrict the innovation potentially at some point. And so, I don't know, I'm quite cynic on this. I, there's, I'd say we're nowhere near and it's a very long time span until the app store is no longer beneficial as a platform to publish in because it does have a massive user base. They do spend high, higher than generally Google Play users. And as long as the LTV cost of acquisition is positive and is growing, then yeah, I don't know. I'm cynic. I think legal governments have a lot to regulate in the world and in countries. And I don't expect decisions like this to take the priority and precedence in being resolved. And so it developing games, publishing and monetizing is about knowing the lay of the land and playing within those rules and maximizing the opportunity within those rules, like with web and hopefully a competitor comes to improve that UX and the trust, building the trust with players. But yeah, that's how I face it. It's like, those are the rules and you have to learn how to perform the best within those rules and I'll hope that they will change because it could be 10 years until really significant change happens. I think the best example of a regular actually doing something prescriptive and getting results was, I think it was Brazil, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure it was South America somewhere, if not Brazil, but where Apple started excluding the power adapter, basically being like, eh, you have enough of those. We don't, for environmental reasons, right? Which they love to use those kind of smoke screens, like privacy. But uh, the they, EU, the EU, they, I, well, Apple they, I, guess they I think they did it in both actually. Cause it was like first, I think in there, but yeah, I think the EU adopted it as well, where basically it was like, no, you've got to put that adapter back in there. You can't just be like, y'all fend for yourself. Like it's a necessary part of this device functioning. And so that was, yeah. that was a small, small win. We need more ones like that, where it's like the obvious thing, like, no, you just need to do this. And then figure out your business around that because it's not going to like tear your business down. So, I mean, even if they were to say like, hey, 27% is too high, you can only do 10% and you can't do these things on that where it's like just knocking down the the sort of bad faith stuff. Maybe there's a middle ground, but I don't know. The the upside is at least Google has more potential if we're talking about going the website because you can load whatever web browser, at least that Apple, like that, that Google allows in the store, which could then open up more opportunities for more sort of like emulative capabilities to allow more like game-like functionality and extend the browser beyond what say Chrome does. Whereas on iOS, you're stuck with Safari and you can't do anything to extend or do anything with it really, except for slightly reskin it. 
Uh, and I think that's that's important. Obviously, like on desktop, for example, it's still pretty much controlled mostly by WebKit, which is like Chrome and Safari. But on mobile, there's a good variety of browsers uh, available on there. And I mean, they all they're not all great, but I think that that offers an opportunity at least to sort of like work that direction. I don't know if it's really tenable because like the, you still need a certain amount of access to the hardware. Google's got to kind of like allow that without rooting your device and and all that. But like there's possibility. I, I, I'm not necessarily a Google fan, but they're certainly like closer to the right side of things right now, I think for game developers, best interest outside of like just other problems that they have. We'll see though. This is going to be a messy 2024 fight. I, I imagine this is going to bleed into 2025 as well, but I think we're starting to see the first cracks for opportunity, which is good. I think for game developers that are stuck in the current mobile situation and there's a lot of things working against it right now. We've seen that where to the point where they're not releasing new games. So it's it's definitely tough. And I hope this actually like helps and doesn't continue to like create a hostile environment. Uh, obviously, we don't have a third mobile ecosystem here in the US. Out in China, they have other ones, but they also have a government that is able to regulate top down if they want to. So it's a very different playing field out there. But we'll see how things go. I imagine this will be, as I've said with some of the other news stories, far from the last time we bring this up. But it is good to see some progress, some some money fines, some new legal regulation at least pushing things. Hopefully Epic will make some progress in their bad faith argument to the district court when they go back because they were, just to be clear, I don't know if you mentioned it, Taylor, but this is because they were denied the appeal. So both Apple and Epic were denied the appeal, which means Epic, who had lost most of the case, can't go back, but it also means Apple can't uh, appeal the one part they lost, which was the anti-steering. If you're looking for the terminology of what we're talking about, just in case you're Googling it or anything like that, I just don't think we mentioned the specific term. But anyways, we'll, we'll definitely get back to that. But uh, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff to start the year off with already. And I imagine we'll see plenty more, but I want to thank, of course, everyone for tuning in, panelists for showing up here for a lot of cool topics as usual. And we will be here week after week with good news and bad news, hopefully more on the good side as we're trying to get into this year as uh, maybe we'll move past at least the layoffs at some point. But uh, thanks everyone for, for tuning in and uh, we'll see you all next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.